so glad that you guys are here. I think my answer to the question of the day would be, uh, I'm going to reference this here in a little bit, but I grew up for part of my adolescence in Canada, in Montreal, in Quebec, and I, I mean, you kind of have to learn how to play hockey when you live up there. And I could skate, but I could not stop. And so that was, <laughs> that was the thing I could not learn. Um, just really happy to have you guys here today. Thank you for being here at church. If you guys don't know me, my name is Aaron. I am the Connections Pastor here at Pursuit, and uh, I'm just excited to be up front sharing this message with you all this morning. Um, I'm going to jump right in, but before we do that, we're going to just pray. So please pray with me, God. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this morning, and uh, we thank you for your word out of the book of Matthew. God, I just pray that this word is useful for anyone can hear it, and that it is a blessing to you, God, that glorifies you. We pray for your presence here this morning and that you can just be teaching us the things that you want us to learn and showing us what you want to show us. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. If you have been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been in the early parts of Jesus' ministry. We've been looking at his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is going to end up being about a 14-week series while Pastor Mark is out with surgery and recouping. Uh, will not only be myself up here speaking, but we'll have some guest speakers as well. So it's going to be just a fun series to be looking at really the heart of who Jesus was and what he was trying to do while he was here on earth. Um, if you're not super familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, uh, I would recommend that you get there. <laughs> and uh, I just want to help you play catch up a little bit. So let's talk about a little bit of the background here. Uh, Mark has been talking the last two weeks about this. Uh, he kind of gave a, a really big intro, and then last week we talked about the Beatitudes. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is very early on in Jesus' ministry. It's like really his first big teaching. He's been on the scene for a minute, and he's been talking and building a reputation, and people have been hearing about this man and his wisdom and, and how great he is, but this is really the first moment where he launches into his ministry. The Sermon on the Mount was new teaching. Uh, it's a departure from really Jewish law and tradition. But if you notice here, especially in this first part, we're going to talk about this today, Jesus is really connecting some pretty big dots between uh, Jewish law and tradition, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things, the new kingdom that Jesus himself is going to usher in. Uh, these new teachings that Jesus is giving here are really striking against a lot of those old ways of doing things from the Jewish perspective. And so what Jesus is really asking the audience, the people who are gathered here to listen to him, he's asking them to relearn what it meant to be a follower of God. So I want to unpack this notion a little bit more for you before we get even farther in here. If you've got your Bible, hold it up in front of you. If you don't, there's zero judgment on my part. Do one of these. Just kind of flip backwards a couple pages. Go back. If you're on your phone, you can go down. You can do that too. Go back into the Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Go to the fourth chapter, the last chapter of Malachi, and go to the last verse in the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. It says this. It says, He, God, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. All the parents in the room are like, yes, I'm tracking. This is great. Yep, love your kids. Kids, you better listen to mom and dad. Okay, awesome. Next. But then it pivots, and it says this. It says, or else I, God, will come and strike the land with total destruction. 
okay, that's a little bit different there, right? All the parents, again, now are going to leave the room after the service, go pick up their kids from kids' ministry, car ride home. Guess what we learned in service today, guys? If you don't listen to mom and dad, God will destroy the world. (laughs) And it'll be your fault. So, (laughs) it's not what it's saying, I'm joking. By comparison, if you look at what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts this with the Beatitudes, which is talking about blessings. The Old Testament ends with a warning and a curse, and the New Testament begins with Jesus promising blessings. Completely different. The Old Testament was characterized by Mount Sinai. It's a mountain. It's where a lot of the things in the Old Testament happened, either on, in the foothills of, or very near proximity to. It's where the law was given. It's also where judgment happened and curse. The New Testament is characterized by Mount Zion with its grace and salvation, its restoration, and its promise of peace and of blessing. If the Old Testament law demonstrates to us man's need, our need for salvation, then the New Testament offers the instrument that will make that happen, a Savior, Jesus. From this perspective, it actually makes a ton of sense then that Jesus would begin his ministry, he would begin this sermon with a recap of Jewish law and traditions so that the audience would not only recognize the old kingdom, but could also then transition to the new one that Jesus is talking about at the exact same time. The Sermon on the Mount, for us, clarifies our need for salvation, and it also offers a new message of blessing. Jesus opens this offer to us. He gives it to us freely. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's a major shift. Mark, last week or two weeks ago, I can't remember, talked about a 180-degree shift, a turn. It's a major shift from the way things were to the way things will be in God's kingdom through Jesus. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, not only today but in coming weeks, we can really break this whole huge thing down into the three big sections. And so we're really focusing on that first section today. I'm calling it, for the ease of clarity, the transforming initiatives in God's kingdom. This section talks about a lot of different things, but it's a lot of those kind of big picture issues like the literal things that people have to deal with, use their faith to figure out. It starts in verse 13. We're talking about salt and light. You just look at those different paragraph headings. Then it talks about the fulfillment of the law. It talks about murder, adultery, divorce, making and keeping promises, your oaths, vengeance, an eye for an eye. It also talks about grace, love for your enemies. This section of the Sermon on the Mount is not so much about forcing new thoughts and new ideas. Rather, it's about connecting old ideas, old ways of doing things to new ones. It's about relearning how to think and do as a child of God. So it's very similar to our question that we asked you for question of the day. I thought about an illustration that could give you all about relearning something. And if you guys didn't know this about me, I was actually born overseas. I was born in Germany. Uh, We didn't live there a super long time. I was only there for a couple months. We came back to the States, lived in Minnesota for about five years, and then we moved up to Montreal, Quebec. Lived up there for the first time two years, came back to Minnesota for a year, and went back up to Montreal for two more years, a total of almost five. And my dad worked for a military contractor, and so he wasn't a missionary. That's what people always ask me. I was like, yep, missionary to Canada. (laughs) They need it. Um, So we just moved around a lot, and it was a lot of fun, actually. But as uh, an American kid, you kind of bump into some different cultural issues. I mean, think about all the stereotypes that you know or have heard of about Canada, about Canadians. 
they're all true. But, you know, we think of Canada as this kind of backwards, like they ride moose, mises, moose, mice, I don't know, yeah. They drink maple syrup, you know, it's just this weird backwards place. Canada is a very similar culture to ours here in America, but it's not homogenous. I mean, the same way our country is not homogenous. East Coast Canadians are very different from West Coast Canadians who are very different from the Central Province Canadians. One of the things that I bumped into living in Montreal for those five years was just the really strong French influence that is present along the whole eastern seaboard, but especially in Montreal. And it's because some of the first Europeans to set foot on the North American continent did so there. It's also a very international culture because being on the St. Lawrence Seaway and the eastern seaboard, there's a ton of trade and commerce that happens through there. It's kind of the gateway into the Great Lakes, and there's a lot of shipping and, and business. But that French-speaking influence in the culture was huge. I mean, everywhere you go up there, there's like French and English and all the road signs, billboards, everything's both languages. Where this really hit home for me as a kid was in school, you had to speak French from fourth grade on. You could no longer speak English to your teachers. So first, second, third grade, you spend a lot of your time learning how to speak French, how to read French, how to write in French, because you have to speak, write, you have to learn in French in order to succeed. And they don't make exceptions for you know, work visa kids who just happen to be up there from Minnesota. So even like, I have an older sister, she's five years older than me. My parents had to hire her a tutor, a full-time tutor when we moved up there. It was like crash course in French. Well, we were there for those first three grades, and I, I thought I was kind of getting it. I really didn't. Got into fourth grade and just crash-landed. Could not speak, understand French at all. And that's when we moved back to Minnesota. Praise God. <laughs> because I would not have made it up there at all. I would probably still be trying to graduate if I was still in Montreal. Um, but it was just really a hard thing, because you're immersed in this culture and this language, and I, you know, just as a kid, you just can't get it. Fast forward for me into high school. Uh, I lived in the South Metro, went to Burnsville High School. And in high school, I had to take two credits of a foreign language. And you know, I, there were a lot of different options, and I was lazy, and I just was like, I'll take French, because I know French. I lived in Montreal for five years. I know more French probably than the teacher. So, so I took French three my sophomore year of high school <laughs> and had a great semester, got my report card at the end of the year, and I got a C. And I was like, okay. Um, I thought I knew French. Fast forward to my senior year of high school. I have to take that second course. Again, presented with a lot of options. I actually wish I would have taken Spanish because that actually would have been very useful to me. But I decided to be lazy again and take French again. And I didn't take like French four, I just took French three again. <laughs> same thinking, same pride, I'm gonna nail this. I got it, French is my thing. Great semester, end of the year, going to graduate, get my report card, got a C minus. I did worse the second time than I did the first time. It is hard to learn things that are difficult. As I'm telling this story, I'm sure some of you are thinking, maybe all of you are thinking about something in your life that you've had to learn and relearn multiple times. Maybe it's cooking, maybe it's parenting, maybe it is a career or your job or a hobby or something. But we all know what that's like. 
And I really think that that is exactly what Jesus is asking the crowd that was present at the Sermon on the Mount to do, was to reimagine, rethink, relearn what it meant to be a follower of God. Now, I don't, if Jesus was given out letter grades at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, I don't know what he would have given those people, but I'm hoping it was better than a C minus. But who knows? So we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but first I want to kind of dive into Scripture and look at this first piece that we have for you guys today. So we're looking at actually at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. And this is talking about salt and light. Starting in verse 13, if you want to follow along, it's going to be up on the screens as well. It says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven." Jesus is telling his audience that they need to be salt and light. The first thing I want to point out here is the very first word in verse 13. It's you. I think when this is being translated into English, a little bit of the meaning gets lost in translation. You, and I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you grammatically, you is both the singular and plural second person pronoun here. So addressing a single person And a crowd, the proper way to do this is to say you. I'm doing this right now. I'm saying you to you all. (laughs) If I look at, like Brian, I might say you, (laughs) right? I might focus on a single person, but I'm using you for both. The mistake in thinking this is that Jesus isn't just talking to one person. He is talking to everyone at the exact same time. So Jesus is saying you, individual Christ follower, are the salt of the world. You, individual Christian, are the light of the world. I think it would be a little bit wrong to interpret it this way. I don't think God is saying we're not the salt and light of the world, but I don't think it's as sweet and as simple as the children's song, This Little Light of Mine. I think it's a little bit different than that. While English suffers from its grammatical weakness here, I do think that there are people who speak English that have actually nailed this error really well. So if you hail from the southern parts of our country, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Southern dialect, twang, it navigates this really well. It's found a way to make a second-person pronoun unambiguously plural. When addressing an individual, they might say you, but when they're addressing a group, they might say y'all. Right, right. So let's read it that way. Y'all are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Y'all are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and give, it gives its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let y'all's light shine before others, that they may see y'all's good deeds and glorify y'all's Father in heaven. I think that's it. So why is this the case and why is this important? The first thing is that 
in Matthew 5, Jesus, he's teaching not only his disciples and close followers, but he's teaching the crowd that has developed and formed here to hear him speak. Jesus, at this point, has developed a little bit of a mystique. I don't want to say fame or celebrity, but people have heard about him and they want to know who he is and what he's about. So I think y'all is likely more the case here than not. The second thing is that Jesus says when he's talking about light, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, if we think about what a city is in our imagination, it's a big place with roads and buildings, businesses, homes. You usually think of lots of people, not just one. If there's just one person in like a street by himself shouting, I am the city of salt and light, that would be a little weird, right? The third thing, and this is the biggest one, is that the Greek here, it's all plural nouns and verbs, literally full of y'alls and not yous. Whatever Jesus is teaching about salt and light here, his instructions are for all people, not just one. So go back again to that first part of 13. Y'all are the salt of the earth. Today we think about salt as something that adds flavor. It's a food additive that enhances taste. In the first century, salt was primarily used as a preservative. Refrigeration was not a thing. So if you wanted your meat to last, it had to be salted. If you wanted to preserve vegetables and food, you had to salt it. This still happens today. Any cured meat has some sort of salt in its preservation. Think about like pickling, that's all salt. Um, I know that there are some of you here that actually cure meats as a hobby, and I just want to make a blanket declaration today for the first time that if given the opportunity, I will eat that meat. (laughs) Just saying. Go to verse 14, it says this. Y'all are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Salt is about the inner composition. Salt preserves the meat's internal integrity and flavor. Light is an external display. Light shines, pushing away darkness and helping everyone near it see. Together, salt and light prevent decay and darkness. This is what Jesus calls his people to be, inwardly transformed by his love. And as a result, having an external display. He makes this even more clear in verse 16 when he says this, in the same way, let y'all's light shine before others, that they may see y'all's good deeds and glorify y'all's Father in heaven. Look at the phrase good deeds here. In Greek, there's two words that can be used in Scripture, to describe good deeds. Agathos and kalos. Agathos means of good or high quality, and kalos means beautiful. In verse 16, kalos is actually the word that's used here. It helps us understand that Jesus wanted his disciples and his followers to live and be beautiful. This is not a health and wealth, prosperity gospel thing. This is not about looking good, being fit, swole. That's not it. It's not about looking good. Jesus wanted his followers' actions to be beautiful so that their lives could be full of beautiful deeds that reflect the love and the glory of the Father. There is one potential problem here in this section, though, and I want to share that with you right now. It's back in verse 13, and it says, But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
Over time and use, salt can become unsalty. And as Jesus says here, unsalty salt is useless. Loss of flavor and the ability to preserve unsalty salt will just be thrown out. So when I read verse 13 and I think about myself or about us, I can't help but think about modern Christianity. To be a modern Christ follower usually means that you attend church 1.8 times a month. And that number is actually lower than that. It's closer to 1.2 times a month. It usually means that someone professes Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but they may or may not be anything about their lives that reflect anything Jesus-like. Lifestyles, actions, beliefs, politics, spending habits. If those things don't mirror who Jesus was and is, then it's hard to call yourself a Christian. There's a researcher who describes this. Michael Horton says, evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, and self-centered, and sexually moral as the world around them. These Christians exhibit no internal heart change and no external display of Jesus' glory or love. If this is the case, and I'm not trying to accuse anyone, but if this is the case, this is a massive issue, guys. Jesus says we are supposed to be salt and light. Another researcher, George Barna, summed up American Christianity over the last 70 years in this way. He says, American Christianity has largely failed since the middle of the 20th century because Jesus' modern-day disciples rarely act like Jesus. That's the problem that we face as Christians today. No internal heart change and no external display of Jesus' glory and love to the world around us. We can't just say we're changed. We actually have to act like it too. And I think that's the heart behind the Sermon on the Mount. The crowd that was listening to Jesus speak at that time, they knew the law forwards and backwards, and yet their lives did not reflect God's glory. Jesus is teaching an ancient audience of religious Jews, and he's also teaching us, modern Christians, today. The problem and the teaching are the same. We need to relearn what it means to be a Christ follower. We need to be changed on the inside and live like it on the outside, like Jesus is actually our Lord and Savior. Here's one last quote for you. This is from Sky Jathani, and it says this. It isn't that he expected each person, Jesus, it isn't that Jesus expected each person to change the world through remarkable accomplishments. Rather, Jesus expected his undistinguished followers to be the source of the world's most essential ingredients. The world does not need more ambitious Christians. Our world desperately needs more ordinary lives lived in rich community with God. I really think that it's time for us to relearn what it means to be a Christ follower and a child of God, to be changed on the inside and to live lives worthy of that title on the outside. Back in 2019, I had an awesome opportunity to co-lead a mission trip to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, with an organization called Healing Haiti. It was an awesome trip. Uh, it was nine days, we were down there, we stayed in the guest house in Port-au-Prince, and we did a whole bunch of different things. It wasn't just serving, even though we did a lot of that, we did a lot of touring of medical facilities and schools, orphanages, 
um, even small businesses that were owned uh, by Haitians and the work they were doing to try and not only provide jobs for their neighbors and family members, but to just make their community a better place. We spent a lot of time in a part of Port-au-Prince called City Soleil, which is a giant slum right on the coast, um, one of the largest slums in the Western Hemisphere. And the things that you see there are, were just crazy. It was like undescribable, the level of poverty and need. Um, and we would go there and drive tanker trucks full of drinkable water in and just give it away to people because there's no fresh water. In Haiti, they speak Creole. Is one of, it's the main language that is spoken, and it's, um, it's a variation of French. French is the root language. And one of the things that I actually enjoyed throughout my time there was because of my background kind of speaking French, I was able to be around Haitians and hear them speak Creole and be able to pick up just enough to be able to kind of understand what they were saying. I could hear a business owner talk about their business and pick up bits and pieces and then maybe share that with someone on my team who wasn't understanding what was being said. I had many moments where I could sit and talk with um, the women who took care of the guest house that we stayed in and hear their stories. And they spoke a little bit of English, but between their little bit of English and my little bit of French, we were actually to kind of have a conversation, which was really great. Toward the ends of that trip, we uh, took a day trip on the second to last day, and we went to a, a village just north of Port-au-Prince in the foothills uh, called Titanien. And this is a, a really awesome place. It has a lot of history that you can learn about. Look it up online. Uh, but Healing Haiti has um, a compound there, so it's a school, and they have a medical center. And so we went up there and toured that. They also have a bakery where they employ Haitians and then make bread and sell it out in the community. A really awesome awesome place. But half of the day that we spent in Titanyan, we actually went out into some more rural parts of the village to go visit with some of the elders in the community. And these are older people who, many of them are home-ridden, some of whom are bedridden, and they are very much dependent on neighbors and friends, family members coming and bringing them even just the most essential things to survive. So my little group, we went to an elder's home, and we got to sit with him and talk and learn about his history and about the village and his family. And just, he was so proud of who he was and where he lived and his history. And part of what we did was we would sit and pray with these elders, and then at the end of our time, we would actually sit and wash their hands and their feet. And just a powerful experience to be able to do that. And not so much in that it was humbling, but just to see the impact for that man. Uh, he was in tears and very powerful for him. But at one point, after we got done washing his hands and his feet, I don't know why I said this, but I mustered what little French that I have. And if you know French, please don't judge me. I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering this. Um, but I said to him, Dieu t'aime et moi si. God loves you, and so do I. It's a powerful moment, and he's crying, and I'm crying, and it was just like, it was just awesome. And this is a man that had like been visited by Christians before. He had heard the gospel. He knew who God was. And again, I don't know why I said that. It wasn't about me, but I just felt like it was something that he needed to hear. And I never would have imagined that God would use my really suspect grasp of French, the French language, 
in such a meaningful way. But I think that is what Jesus is teaching his followers to do with the Sermon on the Mount. Again, his audience literally grew up knowing what God wanted from them. Jesus knew who these people were. They knew the Torah. They knew the customs. They knew the laws. And yet Jesus is instilling a new way of thinking in them, a new kingdom, a kingdom that has to be learned in a new way in order to replace the old one. Jesus is literally using the blocks of the old kingdom to build a new and better one. We are being called to do that very thing today. Jesus doesn't want cultural Christians who go through the motions and say all the right things. He wants followers who are bold and willing to live their faith every minute of every day to be salt and light in the world. Y'all. So my question for you is this. What is it that you need to relearn about Jesus today? What do you need to do to live like Jesus How can you be salt and light this week? Let me pray for you. God, we just thank you for this morning and thank you for your word and experience, God. And I pray for everyone here that we can have the time and the space, the opportunity to relearn about your heart and your desires, God, what you want us to do. And that we can not only learn those things, God, but that we can act we can do. We can shine light into dark places. So we just thank you for this opportunity, God. Pray that you would give the Spirit to every single one of us this week so that we can do that, carry it forward, and make it real. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.